This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So this episode, I'm going to start out with a serial killer. I was going to mention him in the last episode, but we kind of ran long on on time uh, because I I was ranting about some other stuff. But I wanted to talk about a Welsh serial killer. Do you know much about Wales? Just a little bit. This guy is apprehended in 2009, but his crimes take place in the 80s. He's another one of those killers where you know he's got a nickname he's got some confirmed victims and then he sort of has some possible victims he's an interesting guy but i don't think many people talk much about him it's a because it's welsh it's a little easier uh to get the translation right on this stuff he is he's definitely uh prolific now he's known as the bullseye killer for a really weird reason He's another one of those guys, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Rodney Akala, right? I actually don't know. Rodney Akala is the game show killer. Yeah, okay. So I think they call him the dating game killer, specifically. Uh, He was on Death Row, and he died in 2021, so he died fairly recently. But uh, Rodney Akala is a pretty popular true crime subject. Now, this guy is is sort of similar to that in some ways. He was born in September of 1944. And his criminal history starts pretty early. It starts when he's around 16 years old. By the time he was 21, he had been charged with a theft of a vehicle, assaulting a police officer, being drunk and disorderly. He had been charged with assault, causing actual body harm, which ABH is the charge in Wales. He's, like I said, he's not really that well known. And in April of 2009, he was finally uh, identified by a a DNA link to a bunch of earlier crimes. If you look at his, like, kind of his age progression, 1944, he's born, you know, by the time he's 16, we're talking around 1960, he starts committing crimes. He, in 1978, John William Cooper, he was a farm laborer. And he ended up winning uh, what's known as a spot the ball competition. I thought this was fascinating. Have you ever, have you ever heard of spot the ball? I have not. Okay. So the, the, the newspaper will print a photo and basically they'll remove a ball from the photo, like kind of Photoshoppy, but old school. Sure. And you have to guess the position, the exact position of the ball that's been removed. Uh, A lot of times they did this with what's known as association football. In the U.S. they call it soccer. It's, it's, you know, it's known as football in Wales. So he wins this competition not once but twice. 
And his first prize is $90,000 in 1978. So that's a half a million bucks today. And he also wins uh, a $4,000 car. Uh, he had a friend uh, who appears, I think he appears in uh, like a documentary episode about him. Um, and the friend is quoted as saying that John Cooper had developed a huge drinking and gambling problem after he won these two prizes. Uh, this is a life-changing amount of money for somebody. And at the time, he would have been uh, 44 is when he was born. This happens in 78. He would have been 33 years old when he wins this half a million dollars. He spent almost all of his money in, uh, on gambling. So he was into the bookies, uh, but people were scared of him because he was very violent. Um, and he would get into a lot of fights at the local pubs. And as he ran out of money, which was pretty quickly, he started to rob people on December 22nd, 1985, uh, Cooper targets a three-story farmhouse in an area called uh, Scoston Park. And he kills the brother and sister who live there uh, named Richard and Helen Thomas. And then he burns down their house. On June 29th of 1989, four years later, Peter and Gwenda Dixon were on vacation in the area where he lived. It's called Pembrokeshire. They were taking a, a walk along the coastal path before they were headed home. It, this is a really nice national uh, trail in Southwest Wales, and it runs about 186 miles. So it's not like just a, a standard path, but it's, you know, it's, it's almost like if we had like like the, the trail to Honolulu or the Appalachian trail, but it's running like kind of along the cliff tops in Wales. They never come back, but their bodies are later found along the path. Uh, John Cooper had tied the couple up and he had taken their bank card and he had tortured them to disclose their pen number. Later on, Cooper carrying a sawed off shotgun robbed Peter Dixon of um, 300 pounds and he shot Gwenda in the face at point blank range. And then he shot Peter basically has, has become just sort of, I kind of picture him as like a, um, a Mr. Hyde character, kind of just this roving monster who's drinking and robbing. Mm -hmm. In 1996, he attacked five youngsters, uh, when he threatened them with a gun and he sexually assaulted a girl, like in the middle of this group of five people, he, sexually assaults one girl, and then he rapes another one. By 1998, police estimated that Cooper had committed at least 30 burglaries and another armed robbery. They had some footage of him from a 1989 episode that aired on May 28th of the ITV game show Bullseye. And the way that show worked is it three pairs of contestants or teams, which they were made up of a, a darts player and a person who was called a quizzer. And the teams would compete for different prizes. Show actually aired from 1981 
all the way to 1995. So it had a it had a 14 year run, and then it was it started to be reproduced in 2006. Um, but that version of it uh, it only ran for about a year. It's it's a pretty well known show if you lived in Wales or in the UK um, at the time. He's notorious for disappearance because they match him to this old footage with uh, witness sketches from some of these crimes, particularly from the crime where he had uh, had the five kids together. Here's the links they have to, to like some of what he had done. Now, we know he killed Richard and Helen Thomas. We know he killed Peter and Gwenda Dixon. For those crimes... In 2011, he gets convicted and he gets uh, sentenced to life. In September of 2011, he appealed it. It took about a year, and then his appeal ends up getting rejected. He and he was diagnosed an actual—he was a psychopath, like he had an actual diagnosis as having been a, a psychopath. The UK television series Real Crime, which is similar to what we have over here, that's like uh, like Dateline or 48 Hours, sort of a long running. Uh, true crime episode where they talk about one crime and they uh, they interview like the families and stuff like that. He's on that in an episode in November 2011. And then he was also part of, uh, they talk about him in a documentary in May of 2016 uh, on a Welsh language channel there, S4C, in the series The Detective. And what they talk about there is how the evidence against him had been gathered as the crimes unfolded and then how technology, as it sort of moved along, made it possible for them to arrest him. Now, he's responsible and convicted for four murders, and that's the murder of Peter and Gwenda Dixon and the murder of Richard and Helen Thomas and a lot of associated murders there. He's also responsible for the rape of one young girl. But he has a lot of links to other possible crimes. Now, one of the first crimes that uh, they consider to be his, they, they run out a description of what had happened to this woman, and they sort of give us details about some of the other crimes in that description. Now, you can find this on the wiki. There is a really cool three-part television series, if you can find it online, called The Pembrokeshire Murders. They filmed a lot of it on location. And then there was an hour-long documentary that ran with it that I think is on YouTube called Catching the Game Show Killer. And they actually talked to the detectives involved that were part of the cold case unit, some of the forensic scientists who were involved. And they talked to uh, Detective Superintendent Steve Wilkins. He's the, the person who reopened the investigation and got the reexamination going in 2008 and 2009. So the first uh, sort of overcovers they do is in May of 2011, like after he's been convicted, the police were considering reopening an inquiry into a 1989 death of a woman who had lived nearby. So she lived about two miles away uh, from the site of the 1985 murders. This is where he had, he had burned down the farmhouse. There was a woman there named Flo Evans, and she was 72 years old, and she was a widow. 
She died shortly after the murder of Peter and Gwenda Dixon. And she had been found fully clothed in a half-full bathtub in her cottage. John Cooper and his wife, Pat, both knew her. And they would regularly visit her at what is known as a small holding. And a small holding is a community farm that basically is... Uh, shared between several families and they would come over and hang out with her essentially while she, I I don't want to like downplay it and say she was gardening because it's a little bigger than that. Basically she was gardening and Cooper would do odd jobs for her. While Cooper was on trial for the murder of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, he ends up mentioning her as part of his own testimony And during interviews, he discussed how he had been in her house while detectives were already aware of her death being suspicious. Her home was pretty much the dead center of the area in Pembrokeshire where Cooper had been committing his burglaries. Evan's family had long suspected that her death was not an accident. Specifically, they brought up that she never took baths and the the time that this had all happened, she did not have hot water in her house. And there, there was no fire indicating that she had been like transporting water from the kitchen and into the tub. And also she's 72 years old. Like she might've done that once in a while, but it's not going to be a regular occurrence for sure. Her death was officially recorded as an accident. And the, the inquest found that, it was possible that she must have slipped into the bath, hit her head, and then drowned, and the water level just didn't match. Police and the, uh, police contacted her family after Cooper was convicted for the double homicide nearby, and they said that there were some things that connected uh, Cooper to the scene, and that they were exploring whether or not he might have been responsible for the death of Flo Evans. Now in that 2021 documentary, I mentioned the, um, the sort of the after show, which was catching the, the game show killer Flo Evans gets brought up and detective superintendent, Steve Wilkins, who was overseeing all of this. He said that he believed that Flo Evans was the fifth victim of Cooper. She was a woman who didn't lock her doors. And when the police got there, it was found to be locked. Uh, she had mentioned to her friends just days before uh, she was found dead, that she had lost her house keys. There were multiple items of value that had been taken from her house and a shotgun that her husband had owned and that she had kept was missing, as well as some money. Cooper's MO was sort of to burgle the homes of people he knew and knew their houses. And if he was found out, he would react pretty violently. He, there were several instances referenced in the documentary of him, even though he wasn't discovered, discovered, but him like getting into physical fights in the dark with the people who own the homes. Cooper probably would have known where Evans kept her money and her gun. And Wilkins said that Cooper had admitted to being at her house on the day that she died. And he said that, Wilkins said that basically Evans' death should never have been just an inquest. It should have been a murder inquiry, which would have given it like 
rather than looking at it like a death investigation or an accident investigation, he felt like it should be uh, investigated as a homicide, which it wasn't. And it, and it bothered Wilkins, um, at least at the time of the documentary. There was another murder, which is, uh, it's a double homicide. It's the murders of Harry and Megan Tews, which is known as the Lee and Harry murders. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, just researching this case. Okay. These murders, it was the high-profile killings of an elderly couple, as previously said, Harry and Megan Tews. Um, they were at their remote farm in Wales, and on July 26, 1993, they were shot dead at point-blank range with a shotgun. Uh, it was considered to be an execution-style killing. Now, their killer attempted to hide their bodies in the cow shed of the farm, and there were weird things that went on there where their best china uh, was found laid out on a table as if the couple were expecting a guest that they knew. And there was um, lunch found that had been cooked on and in the stove, but it wasn't eaten. And the lead investigator at the time was, he called it the most baffling case he had ever investigated. Now there was a conviction in that case, a man named Jonathan Jones, who was the boyfriend of Harry and Meghan's daughter, he was initially convicted. His fingerprint had been found on one of the teacups, despite him saying that he had never used it. And his alibi had sort of fallen apart. He had claimed that he had spent the day visiting estate agents in Orpington, but there were no estate agents in the area who said that they remembered seeing him or speaking to him. So he was subsequently forced to admit that he had never been to see anybody about any real estate that day. The prosecutors thought that Jones had killed the victims for a $150,000 life insurance payment that his girlfriend would get because he was having financial troubles. So a year later, they squashed his conviction, although to this day, no one's ever confirmed his alibi and there's no proof of what he was doing. He also, I think he and the girlfriend were ruled to be ineligible um, for the compensation from the life insurance policy until he proves that he's innocent. But subsequent attempts to solve the murders had failed to unearth any suspects except for John Cooper. Investigators revealed after his conviction that they were investigating whether or not he might have had something to do with it. It was a little outside of his M.O. The, the thing was, Cooper used a shotgun in his crimes at close range. There have been very few double shotgun murders nationally, and he had committed two of them. That case was re-examined, but we're talking 12 years ago. And it gets mentioned in the documentaries. It gets mentioned several places online. But ultimately... We don't know if he did that or not, but it gets so Flo Evans and then Harry and Megan Hughes get us from his known four killings. That gets us up to seven killings. There's another one that goes back a little further in time. There's a death in Pembrokeshire in 1976, an elderly couple. They were found dead in December of 1976. Their deaths were originally classified as a double murder. Uh, this is a, a couple that are, they're 73 and 70. So Griff Thomas is 73 years old and Patty Thomas is 70. So this is um, a pair, a brother and sister pair. It's not a husband and wife. The way that the inquest goes, 
they decide that Griff, the brother, gets into an argument with his sister. Now, they've lived together for 70 years, and he decides to hit her on the head with a blunt instrument and set himself on fire. So that's the the general gist of what had happened there. The way things work in Wales, they do like sort of these crazy investigations where, and I don't don't know if you're familiar with this, but they don't necessarily give a shit if the people are dead. Like they'll still do a trial, even if the people are dead. The suspects? Like, yeah. Like even if who would be the defendant. Right. They'll hold an inquest like it's a trial and they'll give a verdict that essentially convicts that person, even if they're dead. The verdict, which is a little bit lost in translation uh, between Welsh language and English, but it's not that lost. Uh, A guy comes on in 2011 on the BBC. His name is Clive Sims. He's a forensic psychologist. He questions the verdict of manslaughter in the case of Patty Thomas and an open verdict in the case of Griff Thomas. So what that means is he says it makes no sense that Griff Thomas in his death has essentially been convicted of the murder of his sister Patty and he gets an open verdict, which means in the case of Griff Thomas, he either did it to himself or there's no crime. Okay, it was said that Patty was hit by a blunt instrument, but there was no blunt instrument found nearby. The reasoning was that like Griff could have gotten, you know, he could have done away with it. Clive Sims said that the pair was killed by an intruder following what he thought was a botched burglary. This is 1976, so it's nine years early uh, from Cooper's first known double homicide. But Clive Sims was trying to talk the local police into believing that this would have been Cooper's first double murder. So that, you know, Flo Evans, Harry and Megan choose, they get us from four to seven. And then the deaths of Griff and Patty Thomas are what get us to a possible nine victims for Cooper. The, the rationale used here, and I, and I, I want to know what you think about this. Um, there were missing things in the house. The back door was unlocked. Uh, a locked bureau with some jewelry and other things in it had been broken into. Sims' justification for all of this is he doesn't think that somebody that's sort of a serial killer, which I want to ask you about that, would start killing at age 40, which Cooper would have been 41 in 1985. Um, So I want to ask you about that. So first of all, do you think Cooper's a serial killer from what I've described here? If we just take the first four murders, the first four murders, the two double murders. I think so, yeah. Okay, so we're calling him a serial killer. Do you think like a serial killer would suddenly start killing someone at 41? Um, I don't think so, but I also don't think it's like impossible. That's sort of where I fall in this. Like I, I think there has to be a reason for the killing. Um, what do you mean if they start after 40 or whatever? Well, yeah, I think there would have to be a big trigger or a big change for them to start after 40. Yeah. I, um, I get like these, these killings, um, Okay, so in Wales, what I've found is 
a lot of this information that happens to make its way into the media is not as graphic as it is here. Does that make sense? Like they're more guarded with the information. Yeah. I would have a tendency to agree with that. Yeah. Okay. I, in order to dig into this further, I would need some official records to know, was he raping one of these elderly people when he was doing this? Because he's clearly, he's got a a rape conviction of a younger person, like a teenager. If he had raped Helen Thomas or he had uh, definitely raped Quinda Dixon, I would, like, I don't think, I think we would know if Peter and Gwenda Dixon, if either one of them had been assaulted. But Helen Thomas, I'm not so sure with the whole fire thing going on. Then, then he's just like a burglar killer, right? See, I don't know. I like, I mean, there's a lot of holes here. I actually, when you're saying that they hold trials for people, even if they're dead. I know that's not, that's the wrong way to say it. It's formal though. Even if the defendant has passed away, they take time. I think they should redirect that and do better investigations. Because, like, with Flo Evans, um, I always find it suspicious when a possible suspect presents itself and then they change the cause of death. Yeah. Um, Like, that's weird, right? I mean, she was either murdered or she wasn't. Um, And she would have been, that would have been the I think from what they presented, it would have been the biggest like diversion, right? As far as like from the shotgun fires, basically. Because uh, she's, you know, they thought she could have possibly accidentally drowned in her bathtub, right? That was yeah. what it was ruled at. So that's really far away from a shotgun um, murder. Now, you're right that if I don't think he assaulted them, I assume that he assaulted um, the children. They weren't children. Were they children or just young adults? They were, uh, I think the ages were 12 to 16. Okay. I think he assaulted them because he was mad they didn't have any money. Um, You're right. I do think that um, he's got this, like, really weird... Because uh, to me, it's he's stealing money or stuff he can get money with, right? Um, yeah. And that that's weird. And that would make him less of a serial killer to me because uh, when the motivation is clearly money, it changes things. Um, as far as like what his mentality would be, because once you're killing people for even like this, it seems like it was pretty small amounts of money to be killing people. Um it it changes that to me. Yeah, I'm so like when I think of serial killers, like so Wells, the, uh, uh, Wales had their first Welsh serial killer, and a guy named Joseph Capon, who I am very familiar with, but unfortunately, he'll probably never show up on the show. Um, in a nutshell, he was known as a Saturday Night Strangler, and what he would do is take a teenage girl, rape her, and kill her. Uh, this all happened in, in Port Talbot. The bulk of his crimes took place between uh, 1973 to 1976. He's one of those that has one of those open-ended numbers. Like, um, they know for sure he killed three women, uh, three young girls. But 
they suspect, and these were, and I, and, you know, I'm hemming and hawing on that because they're 16, 17, 18 years old. They're kids. He uh, rapes and kills them. And that's pretty clear cut a serial killer for me. And like, you know, he had all, like he was physically abused. He was physically abusive. He killed dogs. He messed with fire. You know, all of the things that you can imagine, like he fits what I think of as a traditional sadist, rapist, serial killer, predator. This guy doesn't. This guy's more of a robber killer. He is, and I think um, what changed him was, like, winning the money, right? Um, oh, yeah. He went, like, way the wrong way with that, yeah. And I think he got in, like, really far over his head, which is, you know, that's very common. That Something like that is very common to happen. Uh, like, here it would be compared to, like, all the, you know, lottery winners that end up filing bankruptcy or worse, like, within a certain amount of time after they've won the jackpot. Um, but you know, I don't know what he was like before then it, there's not a whole lot of like his early life that's readily available. Right. Um, it kind of starts with that. And then, I mean, he did have some, uh, at least mischievous things. Uh, and, uh, I believe it said that he had assaulted a police officer, right? Yeah, he had a he had an early assault on a he he was not even I think he was eighteen years old when he assaulted a cop and that became like a huge deal for him. Right. And then after and, that he started getting like petty shit. Well, and so that could go like a whole lot of ways. I know a lot of times it can I, some people do assault police officers and you know hurt them and intend to hurt them but sometimes police officers you know get in a scuffle and they're acting like it was an assault i don't know what happened there he was a he was young though uh cooper was right yeah and so once he um started randomly winning that money which is it's so bizarre to me i think that uh he may have been especially I I feel like he just was disappointed in the way like life was going right after he had won money. And then like, I assume he didn't have money anymore, most likely because he gambled it or. Yeah. He gambled it all away. They alluded to all that. Right. Yeah. And you know, then after he, he's committing burglaries and robberies and I've always felt like, it's not that they can't do it. It's just like, you know, burglaries and robberies have a very, very different, I'm sorry, a, a burglar, a burglarer versus a serial killer are two very different things, right? A robber yeah. or a burglar. It, I don't know. It, it just, I, does it say anywhere that he did drugs? It doesn't specify anything more than alcohol. Okay. And so, you know, that would lead me to believe he was, I wonder if like uh, more co-op and, you know, victims, I don't want a victim shame, but like more cooperation or if he hadn't lost his temper, like would he have committed the murders if he had gotten what he wanted out of the burglary? Like, I don't know if that's the way it escalated. I, I thought about that. I have, like, this is my thinking on it. I think he's killing the witnesses. And well, he didn't kill all the witnesses. No, he didn't. That's why I get a little backwards on this. But well, to me, it, 
if he's killing him for killing the witnesses, does that make him a serial killer or no? I'm saying if that turned out to be the case. Hmm. I don't actually know because uh, when I, anytime I see a situation where they're not killing all the witnesses, it makes me think that there's a contributing factor to why like some people he robbed lived and some people he robbed didn't live. Well, that's why I started with Harvey. That, that was the whole reason that he was the first one up because I was curious. The contributing factor would be something like, that could be anything, but I guess like making him mad, him losing his temper. Um, something. Well, you mentioned not having money as well. Well, but he didn't kill those girls, did he? No, he... He assaulted he did, them. Yeah, he, he. there were two sexual assaults. One was a rape. One was a, defined as a sexual assault. Right, and those were young, um, young females, are young adult females, young teenage females, and it's possible that that could be why he, in that case, that was the only the only sexual assaults, right? That's the Mentioned. only one he's charged with, and I'll tell you this: uh, you can watch it in the documentaries if they're like super interested in these cases, but they don't go much further. Finding out what forensics they used was really confusing to me because I wanted to know if they had semen at the scene. And I mean a guy standing in the corner. Like some serial killers don't actually rape the victim, but they still get sexual gratification from the scene. And frequently you can find that they have uh, ejaculated somewhere on the premises. I wanted to know if they did that or if they were just doing fingerprints and hair and overall, I cannot tell, beyond that one girl that is confirmed as a rape, I cannot tell if he had, he does not have any other convictions, like legal matters related to a sexual assault beyond that incident. See, and that, so I really don't know. I feel like, I don't think a serial killer has to be motivated, uh, like a state, I don't feel like they, it has to be a sexually motivated crime, but... I give pause when he, because he could have just genuinely been attracted to the girls that he attacked. And that doesn't make them not victims. They're absolutely victims. But that could have been why he he did what he did to them. It in Without the context, we don't really know, right? Because it doesn't say like he attempted to rob, rob them, does it? It's a very like, I mean, it's like he attacked them, he had a gun, and he ended up being charged with sexually assaulting one and raping the other, but it doesn't say that he tried to rob them, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't say that. And I looked, uh, there's like six sources I found for that. None of them reference uh, exactly what he did. I will say there was one archived uh, article that I'll use. I'm, I'm just trying to get at like what his motive might've been if it wasn't. Cause I mean, I, I believe a serial killer, I guess can be a robber and there can be more to it. I, I definitely think that um, Flo Evans and then the other brother and sister pair are, are him. If that makes sense. Like the, just, it would be so weird for it to be anyone else. Um, well, but Flo Evans was ruled an accident. Correct. He didn't shoot her. So did he drown her? No, I think, I think they struggled 
in the course of him trying to rob her house and he ended up um and so that would be different as well because he yeah that's what i'm he saying didn't like know the other victims right yeah i think well no he did he knew some of them like that was well he knew his burglary victims like he knew all of them so here's here's what i'm gonna read to you and you tell me if this changes things for you this is from a woman named Katie Stollard. She was writing at the time for Sky News, which is, uh, you know, an, a British website. She was the West of England correspondent in May of 2011. And here's what her little article says. A grandfather has been handed four life sentences for two double murders and a violent sexual attack dating back decades after footage from TV show Bullseye was used to help identify him. John Cooper from Milford Haven, Pembrokeshire, murdered brother and sister Richard and Helena, Helen, Richard and Helen Thomas in 1985, and Peter and Gwenda Dixon in 1989. He went on to attack a group of teenagers in 1996, raping a 16-year-old girl and sexually assaulting a 15-year-old friend at gunpoint. Cooper, now 66, has previous convictions for armed robbery and served a 10-year sentence after being sent to prison in 19. 19- 98. Um, the killer repeatedly tried to shout over High Court Judge Mr. Justice John Griffith as he was sentenced in Crown Court. The judge said the murders was of such evil wickedness that the mandatory sentence of life will mean just that. I am confident you will never express any remorse and so help the victims come to terms with their loss. You are a dangerous man who is highly organized, predatory, burglar, whose hallmarks were balaclavas, which is a mask, gloves, and a shotgun. Each of your offenses were well-planned, and so it was you who evaded arrest for so long. Indeed, but for the advances of forensic science, you may well have never been brought to justice. Then it kind of breaks down what happened. Siblings Richard, who was 58, and Helen, 54, were attacked in their home near Milford Haven in December of 1985. Mrs. Thomas was found entangled in rope with a man's shirt tied around her head as a blindfold. Her brother was marched and killed in the outhouse of the property. Police believed that he had come home early and he interrupted the attack on Helen. Both were shot at close range and then doused in diesel before the house was set on fire. In July of 1989, Peter Dixon, who was 51, and his 52-year-old wife, Gwenda, were murdered as they walked along a coastal path in Pembrokeshire. Uh, They had been on the last day of their camping holiday near the beautiful village of Little Haven. It was a damp morning, so they had decided to go for one final walk along the tourist trail while they waited for their tent to dry out. Wearing a black balaclava and brandishing a sawn-off shotgun, Cooper accosted the couple in the path and forced them to make their way down a steep gully towards the cliffs. In a small clearing, screened from the footpath overhead by trees and undergrowth, he tied up Mr. Dixon, then sexually assaulted his wife. Oh, okay. He then made them hand over their bank cards and their pens before shooting them both several times at close range. The killings were described in court as merciless executions carried out for pitiful financial gain and Cooper's sexual gratification. John Cooper is an evil man, said DCS. Steve Wilkins, who led the case for the local police. John Cooper was a man who thrived on control, his ability to control people, and his ability to control his environment. He was an individual who could live within the family home a relatively normal life 
and the next moment display the most disproportionate amount of violence and be prepared to kill. Uh, in a bizarre twist, Cooper had appeared on the TV game show Bullseye the month before he murdered the Dixons. Detectives compared footage from the show with an artist's impression of a man seen using Mr. Dixon's bank card in the days after the shootings. The TV clip was played in court to show the jury what Cooper looked like at the time and how he compared to the police artist's sketch. Local police began a cold case review of the crimes in 2006 after advances in forensic science techniques offered new techniques to examine the original evidence. Scientists at LGC Forensics made the breakthrough when they found a tiny fleck of Mr. Dixon's blood on shorts found in Cooper's home and crucially on the barrel of his shotgun, even though it had been cleaned and painted over. The key elements of the DNA evidence were finding the blood on the shorts and also finding the blood underneath the paint on the shotgun, which matched that of Peter Dixon. In 1989, DNA profiling wasn't in existence, and these were all techniques that were only really available to us in the past five years or so, and in those days, they just weren't available, said lead scientist on the case for LGC, Dr. Philip Avenel. Cooper has always maintained his innocence and has yet to show any remorse for his crimes. So he was sexually assaulting them, and the DNA well, was the blood turns, evidence. Right? I'm, I'm glad I was able to find that. The thing took for, it's archived, so it's forever to load. Okay, so my so my question to you is: He assaulted the five teenagers in March of 1996. So why didn't he kill any of them? I don't know the answer to that question. And it's one of the things that always bothers me, by the way, when I can't find some kind of consistency between people, but I have to remember that these criminals can sometimes just be idiots. You know what I mean? I agree. Um, and then like, so the Dixons were taking a walk, yeah. right? The other couple, they were, um, at home, right? Correct. I'm sorry. The other ones were brother and sister, not a couple. The Dixons are the couple. The other pair, yeah. Um, and then Richard and Helen Thomas are the siblings. And so they were at home. And so to me, I wouldn't have put those together necessarily. But they do have the shotgun blast, right? Yeah. Uh, because that was, it is a strange, it is a uh, close range shotgun uh, killing is, it's, it doesn't happen that often. A double is what they were saying was yeah. the comparison, right? Where two people are shot by a shotgun at close range. And cause that's a particularly, uh, damaging. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a big right? weapon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, it's I mean, it's going to, it's going to cause, you know, a big mess. And it, it also speaks to the heinousness of the perpetrator. Right. And so, okay. So we're Richard, and Helen related to Griff and Patty? Uh, I don't know. Talk about the names? Yeah, because they're I, it's it, so he was convicted of um, uh, he's convicted of killing Richard and Helen, right? In their correct. home, their siblings, um, John and um, I'm sorry, uh, Peter and Gwen. Gwenda Dixon were on a walk. So you've got, and then he's suspected of possibly being involved in the death of Griff and Patty Thomas. Have I completely messed this up? I don't think so. Why? Well, Griff and Patty are siblings, right? Griff and Patty and Richard and Helen. So they're both pairs of pairs siblings. Pairs of siblings, right. Okay. 
And so uh, I would be interested to know if they are related to the other ones. I don't know the answer to that. I know. I I know. I just, um, and so that would have put him substantially younger starting, which is the whole point of why it comes up is because the investigator felt like um, it might explain an earlier start as opposed to a 40 year old starting to be a serial killer. And that's interesting. That, that confused me for a second because um, all that was happening. He was, Um, uh, so he's married this whole time with a kid, by the way. And, and he's, you know, abusive to them. And ultimately, if you watch the, uh, the Pembrokeshire murder, which is, it's like, um, I don't want to say it's fictionalized because it's true crime, but it's like true crime drama. It's like, you know, people playing the roles, Um, but not a reenactment. It's like a, it's like a pretty cool series with some pretty big actors in it. They make it look like, so in 2005, like they start kind of looking at solving those murders. And like by 2008, 2009, they're pretty sure it's him, but they find evidence. Like there's this one scene where like, he's so evil to his wife and so controlling. Uh, And she's just trying to like hem up his shorts. Anyways, when she hems up his shorts, she inadvertently seals uh, the blood in the cuff. And that comes out. I don't know if that's actually how it happened, but it's how it happens in the, like the BBC series. And I thought that was pretty fitting and ironic. I just wanted to know if you thought maybe he was killing them because, you know, there were witnesses to it all. Well, yeah. And I guess that would be, that could be the case. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to move over from this guy, John Cooper, which he's, he's got an interesting story. Uh, people don't talk about him a lot in the U.S., but there is some coverage. Um, there's interviews with his son, and I don't like his son has changed names, so I don't know. I don't know if like he's. I, I saw it in the court documents, but they use a different name and how he's he's older, but they still use a different name um, and how they present him. So I don't know if he's hiding in the world or not. I don't want to say a lot about that, but it, so there's a series you can watch on. Uh, I, I think it's online. And then there's like a documentary afterwards that sort of explains what you and I were just talking about. It's 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 a pretty cool look, and it does relate back into all of this. Now he's not a he's not a one ad killer, so I don't want to to get that wrong. How he came up in the course of the investigation of me looking for classified ads killers and one ad killers was because he had won that stupid spot the ball game. He's listed as someone connected to like newspapers, and at first. Oh. Does that make sense? Like it's it's kind of a weird thing that he does there when he wins that spot the ball thing. That's how he ends up in in the mix of all this. But also, I was using him to transition back in time because we're going all the way back to like the early eighties now. But okay, the- well, first I have to say something because you brought it up and then you swung back. So you mentioned that Americans call football soccer, right? Yeah. Okay. And I just wanted to point out, I learned this fact. I didn't, you know, it's it's not my fact. It's just a fact um, that in the early 1800s, football and rugby existed as different variations of the same game. Yeah. And in 1863, the Football Association was formed to make uniform rules so that you know, more kids could play it together. And so in 1871, the rugby football union uh, 
followed suit. So you've got the Football Association and the Rugby Football Union, and they're the two official sports. And uh, official sports of England. Oh, okay, I got you. <laughs> so rugby, rugby football, and yes, and association football is what it's called. And so it was beginning to become, you know, commercial, and and it, like they were trying to uh, make it into leagues where it can become a thing for you know uh, young boys at schools to do. It ends up being that uh, in England, the aristocratic boys they started um, shortening it to the terms rugger for the rugby football and soccer for the association football. And so it actually um, like, so America didn't come up with soccer. If you look at the word association, like, cause you can't very well use ass, right? Yeah, it, it would be S-O-C. <laughs> yeah, no, I... <laughs> so anyway, so it was rugger and soccer. And so it's actually a misconception that we named it soccer. And the reason this all comes up is because um, we looked it up uh, during during the World Cup, which just happened in Qatar over, like, basically the holidays. There was a ad that David Beckham was in where he... Uh, calls, he says he owns a soccer team, right? <laughs> and David Beckham's <laughs> from England. And anyway, it's a whole thing. And um, uh, Peyton Manning is in the commercial as well. It's really funny. But anyway, I looked it up because of this. Um, my husband's a huge soccer fan, and I watch a lot of soccer because of that. And um, that is the origin story of the word soccer. It is the shortened... Uh, it's the abbreviation that somebody pulled out of the word association, and then they erred it. So, rugger and soccer. <laughs> I figured if anyone knew, it would be you. Because you guys have like, I don't know, I like. So, I watch soccer, but I don't know like a lot about uh, the world version of it. You guys have like a dedicated channel in your house where you can watch it, don't you? Oh yeah! So if there's a soccer game in the world happening, it's on at my house usually. Yeah, um, I've been I, over I, there in the basement before, and there's games going on. I'm like, is it even the season for the sport? There's always soccer being played um, somewhere. Like whether depending it, you know, if it's league soccer or if they're like, you know, going through the championships to make their place for the world cup or there's always soccer being played. Um, I, I don't mind watching it. I actually get into it quite a bit, but um, especially for the world cup, that's huge, but uh, it's more my husband's thing, but I just thought that was very interesting. And I, I like to look in, you know, I like to investigate stuff. Um, but to go from like football to soccer, I was like, how does that even happen? Right. Cause soccer is not actually a word. And that explained it. Um, the association, the SOC, and then they were just adding it. Uh, and it was a way they could tell their friends uh, in a quicker fashion if they played rugby or if they played football. That is interesting. Um, it is interesting. I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that in here. But unfortunately, we're out of time for this week. So we're going to have to come back to the serial rapist in Tampa next week.
Thank you so much for joining us today. I would ask if you guys like the show, please share the show, or you can go on to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple or Google or uh, one of the more interesting apps, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, we're on all those different things. If you could go on there and leave us a, a rating or a review. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to leave us a five-star review, but like whatever you think of the show, leave an honest review of the show uh, because that will help us to grow our audience in season four. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. It's sort of weird for me to like hear back on some of these episodes. We like we have a very long serial killer thing we put together here. And I was trying to uh play to some of the personality stuff and trying to play to some of the case stuff. The bottom line is we were doing a couple of different things here that it was requested of us. We have some other projects going on and it's related to that in some ways. So I've been asked to limit like some time limits and, and go over on others and like look at what like ad placement would sound like and some things related that are they're not very true crime. I'm just putting them in here because I wanted to see uh, what the listener retention was and, and really to see um, if I even liked it, because if I don't like it, I don't want to put it in there. But that's how some of this is running at like odd times. Uh, I think that people enjoy the season once they see the killers that we've been researching. But for now, I, I really do have to uh, sort of bounce around a little bit in order to to see what the structure and the format of the show looks like. <laughs>
Wherever you 